If you haven't signed up for our Discord channel, please do so at MajorDomoMedia.com. There's a link. We'll take you to our wonderful community. We have legitimately big discounts to any day. Cookware changes your whole game using the microwave and those bowls. Athletic Brewing. It's non-alcoholic beer, but it's just a delicious beverage. Uh, if you haven't checked out the day packs, you should. That's like hoppy water, and it's awesome. And, of course, we worked on a Rattler that is delicious on ice. Comet to your coffee. I'm drinking two of those every day, and uh, I'm trying to limit myself because it's changed the whole coffee game. And, of course, all things Momofuku. You can visit us at shop.momofuku.com. I think there's a 10% discount code for that, or you can visit us at Whole Foods or Target or your local great grocery store that should be stocking the Momofuku products. And we have two new flavors, the sweet and spicy and just the the chili spicy. Oh my God, I'm, I'm blanking on that name, but with two new flavors uh, that we've been working on and they're delicious. Um, yeah, let's get on to the show. Uh, we got Alex Tupac on. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Alatingo, as always. Chris Yang is not here today. Uh, he will be joining us on the next podcast. But we have a guest, and his name is Alex Stupak. You may be familiar with him. If you are a pastry chef, you should 100,000% know what he's done. If you've been in food for a long time, uh, in terms of cooking and and just sort of caring about what's innovative, you definitely know who he is. And you may know him simply because he makes great, delicious food in New York. He's got five taquerias called Empayon. And he also has another one in Midtown that's not just tacos. It does all kinds of other things. And he also recently opened up a restaurant called Misha, which is his take on American food. And Alex is a close friend of mine. I've known him Oh my God, 20 years? Yeah, about 20 years. I don't say this lightly. I think that Alex Dupac is easily one of the greatest chefs America's ever produced. And I don't think of another chef that's created more independently unique ideas and techniques than Alex. In terms of techniques that are used widely, and you may not realize it, but many, many restaurants use the things that he created, whether it was at Alinea, he was the opening pastry chef for Alinea, and he replaced Sam Mason, the great, great Sam Mason uh, at WD-50 and uh, created, when I say created, that gets thrown around, he legitimately created techniques that are used today. So if you go to any ambitious, independent, fine dining restaurant that has a pastry program, I guarantee you, you're going to see at least one, at least one of the ways he used to make desserts on your plate. But he's he's just a hilarious guy. And what I've always loved about Alex is he's fiercely independent. He loves, loves, loves to be curious and to think in different ways. And you're going to hear us talk about the bubble of modern gastronomy. I don't like to use the word molecular gastronomy because that legitimately was a marketing term but modern gastronomy makes a whole lot more sense to me. And it's, 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 I don't, I would say he would be one of the foremost practitioners of it. I was, I mean, like, 
I was an advocate of it and there were some techniques that we applied, but I was never in the, 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 the levels that Alex was doing. He was doing things with Wiley that nobody else was doing. And I loved it very much. And I think that not just with Alex, but Wiley and that entire sort of generation was instrumental in, in, in American gastronomy. And, and we talk a lot about the doldrums, potentially what might be where we're at right now in terms of creativity and a lot of the things sort of being the same. So check out his restaurants. They're delicious. If you live in New York, go eat there. If you're visiting New York, you should definitely visit one of the best talents and best chefs of our generation. And that sounds like quite the hyperbole, but it's the fucking truth. Anyway, I wanted to start off with three things that I love about Alex Dupac. One is, you know, again, my, I said my history with him goes all the way back to Alinea, uh, Grant Ockitz's and Nick Kokonis's restaurant in Chicago, Three Mission Stars, arguably one of the most important restaurants the past 50 years, one of the very best, too. He used to work at Clio for Ken Oranger in Boston. He's from Massachusetts, and he has a wicked mass hole accent uh, that comes and goes. Became the pastry chef at WD-50 and sort of, um, I would say like three, four years in, he decided to leave. Malcolm Livingston replaced him. And the pastry department at WD-50 became like, like the head of the Vance Institute. You know, <laughs> it became a, a place where everyone recognized that whoever is running that department is bad as shit, right? Sam Mason, Alex Dupac, and then you had Malcolm Livingston, who became the pastry chef at Noma. Then you have Rosio Sanchez, who became the pastry chef at Noma. So, like, when people want to realize that, like, how relevant are a lot of the techniques and the ideas created back then, they're very relevant because you're eating them today. And he just has one of the best CVs. He is so good at, at thinking about food, and he's so good at cooking food. And he makes ultimately delicious food. And that's number one reason I love him is he's one of the very few people that have created techniques. Um, We talk about a couple of them, but we're trying very hard not to uh, bore you guys with food nerdery here. And I just don't think he's ever gotten enough credit for that. Second reason why I love Stupak, and we mentioned this in a little bit, he's a sandbag master. And sandbagging is, we've talked about it a lot, it's a dark art. They don't teach it in cooking school. If you do it too much and too sloppily, sandbagging is not a good thing. And it's a sort of an offensive term. Uh, you can get really upset if somebody calls you like a sand, you're just sandbagging. But much like calling someone chef, which I would say today in 2023, it's, it's a bad thing. It's almost offensive to hear the word chef if you call someone else chef. But there's reverence for the word chef when it's properly used for somebody that is somebody you admire and respect. And I think sandbagging is that same way. I think most of the time it's seen as a bad thing. But I admire the those that try to be a great sandbagger because you have to be wily. You have to be creative. You have to be thoughtful. You have to be organized. You have to be so on top of things to be able to methodically plan out how you're going to make something before it's even ordered, before it's even served. And to do it at a way where sandbagging where it tastes bad is not worth it. If you can sandbag and the goal is for it to taste just as good when it was freshly made or better, that is, that's a dark art. 
that is the darkest of arts, and I love it. I pride myself on being able to find sandbagging ways, but I pale in comparison to the to the lord of sandbaggery, and that name is Alex Dupac. Um, he's like Emperor Palpatine, and he's the only person that would take that as a compliment, because uh, it is. But he's the dark fucking lord of sandbagging, and if you don't know, you'll never know. But I don't think that anyone comes close. He's by far and away the the greatest practitioner of those dark arts, and I'm in awe of his mental ability to conjure fucking things. He's literally fucking Voldemort. It's amazing. And the last story we're going to briefly talk about is this identia identia golusa. I butchered that word. It was a conference. It was like the Italian version of Madrid Fusion. Again, I tried very hard this podcast not to throw terms that were just too inside baseball, but it was a gastronomic conference. I've been fortunate enough to attend almost all of them. And you probably, if they were like the majors in sports, you had like four major ones. And then you had a lot of sort of like significant, but not as important as Madrid Fusion, Identita, uh, Gastronomica in Barcelona. And there was another, America never really had one. Even though, you know, the American version was always lackluster. And that's going to piss some people off. And it's meant to be because the Congress here sucked. We were sitting in a hotel 2014, 2015. And uh, with Wiley Dufresne and, and Alex Dupac. And I just remember this conversation of all of us complaining. And when you can bitch and moan with friends in your industry, it's, it's really just a, an amazing feeling because it's solidarity and it's, it's a lot of comfort knowing that whatever's bothering you is bothering them. And I just remember feeling um, a sense of warm and, warmness and belonging, but we were really not happy about the state of affairs. And little did we know that if you look back on it, you know, 2000, 2015, 2014 was sort of peak modern gastronomy. And honestly, not just modern gastronomy, it was sort of modern food. Peak, for sure. Peak, I think. And yeah, Stupak is more pessimistic than I am, and that's a hard thing to do. But man, he's a hell of a chef, and he's a great person. So those are the three things I wanted to talk about. Gastronomica, where we were bitching and moaning, letting people know that he's a sandbag master, the highest sandbag master. And one of the most thoughtful creative chefs that we've ever had. So uh, we'll just get onto our interview with Alex Supak. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new 
Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. I, I can't believe I haven't seen Stupak in, it's got to be four years now. When we used to see each other multiple times a week for decade, a decade plus, you'd probably say. Yeah, about 10 years. Four or five times a week, crossing paths. And um, he would either be coming up First Avenue or Second Avenue, and I'd be going down it, or we'd cross each paths at the farmer's market. And it was something I could depend on, like like clockwork. And I think for, for Alex as well, where we could turn to each other as we're passing each other and complain about something. And it's one of the things I miss most about New York City is depending on Alex Dupac to complain because I think he's one of the world's best a lot of things. But getting Alex Dupac to bitch about something is one of my favorite things in the world. So welcome, Stupac. It's great to great to have you here. And um, yeah, I can't believe it. it's got to be four years since we see each other. Last saw each other. Feels like longer. I know, right? And I miss those. Yeah. And I miss those little sort of got a minute on the street therapy sessions as well. We were efficient with them, and I would feel better afterwards. And we'd laugh because we would just say, like, oh, man, how, how much this business sucks. Or then he's like, oh, I'm opening another restaurant. I'd be like, you're so fucking stupid. And then, you know, a week later, like, I'm opening another restaurant. He's like, you're so fucking stupid. And it was really reassuring <laughs> to know that we felt the same way. No matter how dark or bleak I felt about something, I knew that at least there was another person that felt as dark and bleak about our industry as I did. But that's not what we're necessarily here to talk about. I want to ask you a bunch of things. Um, I cannot believe we've never had you on the podcast. Uh, that's a that's a shame on me. Uh, I think if uh, it was still in New York and we we're recording there, we would have had you many, many times. But we're now separated, and I wanna I wanna talk to you. It's been a long time since we've chatted. I, I'm I'm I mentioned at the top of the podcast. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had was with you and WD when we were doing the Identica, Identia conference in London. What year was that? 2014, mm-hmm. 2015? Do you remember what we were I think it was about? 2015 or 20. We were kind of talking about how it was impossible to hire anyone anymore. And that cooks had given up. No one cared. And what were we going to do? Open more restaurants. That, that's what it was. <laughs> and I, I think we were like six espresso martinis deep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It, it, it's one of the great things about working in the industry when you find people that can commiserate in the same misery and the, the absolute absurdity of the business. And if you think about it, it's like, <laughs> think about that time. This is, is this peak food culture, 2015? Where food conferences were still going over, right? We're getting flown out. Really, we could have been flown out two times a month to go to one of these food conferences that are happening all over the world, right? We're flown out. You do a demo. Did you do a demo? Oh, yeah. What did you demo? Do you remember? Oh, I forget. It was some egg-centric dessert because it was part of Wiley's thing. And this thing was all, he's always all about eggs, right? So. Always. 
And like, that's what you do. It's a little bit like a, it, it's a little bit like a fashion show to some degree for those that want a better understanding. It all started off with, um, Madrid fusion and that created every kind of spinoff and a very, very important part of fine dining. Cause that's how ideas got communicated. You could sort of plant your flag in certain areas and you're traveling a lot. Um, doing these shows. It really was a food-ass fashion sort of time. I mean... It really was about, you know, showing the new thing that you could do as a designer of food. I feel like that's what it was like. And now that it's almost 10 years later, you can almost say it was like peak food, right? We didn't know it at the time, but it was not going to be ever be the same. Even without COVID, yeah, it wasn't no. going to be the same. Because it all sort of stopped. Those congresses, it just, it hit those conferences, it, it ran its course. Yeah, it did. So, like all modernist movements, that's what the interesting you say that. So, let's get into that. Before we get into that, do you think that that era, the mid teens of the, 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 the you know, 2015 ish era, was peak pastry? Peak American pastry. It was definitely peak pastry. It was definitely peak pastry, um, and pastry was actually informing savory at the time. How so? Because pastry is more prone to manipulation, right? How so? Well, pastry is more, yeah, so the way I always explain it is this. It's like, if I'm going to serve you a steak, you expect to see a steak in some form, but I can make you a dessert of strawberries where you don't see any strawberries. So it's purely about flavor transmission, right, and manipulation. So... That like think about El Bulli and what they were doing, whether the food was salty or not, it was driven by the pastry kitchen. It was driven by manipulation and pushing things into new forms, new shapes, new appearances. I think that was the driver. You think that outside of our group, anyone gave a shit about it more than us? Or clearly no, right? Did it even matter? No. Yeah, no, that, I'm glad you said that because it seemed so big to us and it, it seemed like the whole world where really it was novelty and it, it wasn't moving the needle in a big way, in a major way in terms of how like the world eats. It actually was nothing to do with that. So we were kind of, I hate to say this and it sounds sad, but we were, we were cooking for each other. <laughs> yeah, We weren't cooking for the masses. We were cooking for each other. I, I I hate saying this because I don't want it to be accurate, but I do because I always have to compare things to better understand things. And what you're describing the that era that we were living in for, and that era really started, you know, 2000, 2000 really to 2015, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right around when Heston got three stars. So that was like 2000, right? That is the equivalent of disco. <laughs> That's funny and depressing at the same time. Right? It's a it's a bubble where people yeah. that listen to that music really cared about it. But in in and it really did spread throughout culture. Even when the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones are making disco influenced tunes, it's 
And you, we saw a lot of the modern techniques and modernism in food infiltrate all parts of food, right? All the way down. But it never had a lasting moment because of a lot of reasons, which we talk about or, or not talk about. And whether that's true, it's disco or not, like I look back on that as like, wow, that was a bubble, like many bubbles. It was insular, and now it's not really relevant anymore. Do you feel that what we were doing has any relevance now? When I say me, you more I than me. That, yeah, um, I think there's remnants of it. You know, um, I think there are useful techniques that we picked up. Like my new restaurant, we're serving a veggie burger, and I think it's the best one ever, and it's bound with methyl cellulose. You know, how dare how dare you how no. dare you use methyl cellulose? <laughs> <laughs> it makes the best veggie burger. <laughs> if you're actually trying to make the best veggie burger, <laughs> what, for those listening, what um, is methyl cellulose? Oh, I'm sorry. It's um, it is a plant based gelling agent that gels when it gets hot and melts when it cools down. So it's sort of like the inverse of gelatin. It's it's what they call a theme thermo irreversible gel. Yes. And what w- what's in that burger? It's um it's roasted mushrooms that we run through a meat grinder. And that's it. And it makes that's, the best burger. That's that tastes molecular to me. I don't know if I'm going to like it. Alex, I don't, well, think think about it this way. It's like veggie burgers. What do they taste like? They have no flavor identity. A burger is beef. It tastes of beef. If you add any adjunct to it, it's a meatloaf or a, a meatball. So it's trying to make a burger with a singular flavor identity. And, you know, add that little bit of gelling agent. That does it. You don't need starch. You don't need anything. We're getting nerdy. I'm sorry. I'm going to show No, I, that's why I wanted you to talk <laughs> about it. Because, again, I don't know. I don't want to make the assumption that people know. And, and, um, I, at the top of the pod, I, I, I've talked a lot about your career and, and how you got here, but I don't know if people know you as one of the most foremost practitioners, inventors, and, um, quite frankly, like best in class chefs inventing technique in America. I, I have to say that you were probably one of the very, 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 very few people. That was consistently inventing technique, not altering existing techniques. Right? I don't know if people know. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the goal. They may see that you're a pastry chef. I don't know that anyone cares anymore. But it should matter. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Now they see you as a successful chef and restaurateur, but like. I'm happy that I got to do it. Does it, but do you yeah, feel it's, it's incomplete? In time. Do you still want to pursue that? You think we're too close to it still to actually reflect upon it in a way? That, that's a good question. Um, I think if you're going to do anything, you have to do it for yourself. But I think if you're doing it to go, hey, look at me or get someone to notice this little nuance about it, this little interesting thing. Um, I think that's kind of over. I think it's kind of drowned out. I think we've become a very visual society. Um, you know, I think we're, we're much more culturally concerned. Um, we're much more, you know, concerned about concepts like virtuosity. Um, and I think that's all good, but 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know that people care about these parlor tricks anymore. Do you think that, I think about this a lot, of the what if scenario, what do you think that if there are a few things that changed or happened in a different way, America, specifically New York, would be embracing modern gastronomy and, and, and modern ideas than not? You know, like if WD got the three-star review when it should have that, that first year it opened, if, you know, you didn't have all these bad imitation LV knockoffs coming in, you know, that, that year too. Like there was just so much bad shit being made with no idea. You know what I mean? Like Chicago weirdly was the only place that modernism was embraced. I have a theory about why that, on that one too. And again, it's like my only experience in opening restaurants is New York City. And I think New Yorkers just use their restaurants in a different way. And so? I think that ties in a lot to it. How so compared to Chicago? Well, I think that I think that New Yorkers need to eat in restaurants. They don't have a choice. So take like one of the best restaurants in the world, like take La Berna Den. For some people, that's they're regulars there. They eat there once a week. You know, the way that some people eat at diners once a week. Whereas I do feel like in Chicago, when people are going out to eat, it's more like going on a roller coaster. They're, they're, they're along for a ride. I often thought... So uh, in that way, if, they're, maybe they're... Yeah, but I, that, I never thought about it that way. That is actually, I think, absolutely probably the main reason why. But you think that if, if you took that reason out, you know, hypothetically... Right, and I do think I never thought about that way, and I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Right, it's it's a necessity versus um, an experience per se. But if New York right. embraced it as Chicago did, anything that's modern, I think we're having a very different conversation today. I agree. I, what I'll say is that if if the critics and the writers and the kingmakers of that time really had gotten behind it and supported it the way they did with the chefs in Chicago, we might've been in a different situation, but they didn't. And I don't want to lay blame. Listen, like things could have been better. Things could have been executed. That's not really it. I thought the food was being executed at a high level. I, I get fucking furious and I want to know what your thoughts are when critics or food writers complain that things are boring in New York or the state of affairs and food in general, because nothing's new or everything's the same old. It's all comfort food. I, I don't know if they realized they had a huge hand in making that happen. Well, yeah, it, it is infuriating because um, the track record is that they don't reward boldness. They don't reward creativity. Um, so when you have the courage to do something crazy, um, I don't know. I, I'm dealing with this right now, you know, glutton for punishment. I just opened a new American restaurant and I just refuse to do it on the nose, you know, and you hear about it. People complain. They're like, why doesn't your, why doesn't, why isn't your cocktail sauce just ketchup and horseradish? Why is it creative? Why is it not what I expected? And it can kind of bum you out. It can kind of, you know, it can kind of beat you down a little bit. It, I, I, I'm, I'm happy that we're talking about this because 
I don't know if people know just how different things could have been. Um, and the food that you're making today is just a different manifestation of the stuff that you were making 10 years ago, right? You're, you're wiser, you're, you're, you're more worldly, you know, across the board, but at the end of the day, like you're a creator, you want to express yourself in, in, in a variety of ways and you want control over that creativity. And I think it is a bummer. Um, and I do get mad, right? I get mad that a lot of my friends that were doing some of the best stuff never got the praise or celebrated as much as they should, because if they did, I think New York could and should have been the epicenter of modern gastronomy, but it just didn't happen. So, you know, you're doing it your way and, and, and we'll get to that in a second, but is that, is that why you got out of it? You saw it early on. Is that why you left to open up tacos? Cause I remember Tosi saying, Hey, Stupac's going to open up a taco shop. I was like, what the fuck? If I had to put on a list of the top 10 most what the fuck <laughs> moments, that was right there. I was, what the fuck? That's got to be a joke. And sure enough, it was not a joke. Well, what made it? I remember yeah. asking you, but I don't know if you gave me a complete answer. Well, it, it, was, a, it was an act of rebellion, first and foremost. You know, once you get known for something, than people expected of you. So the irony was this, was that we were, you know, pushing food forward and doing all these crazy things with it, but then people expect that from you. And once it's expected of you, then it starts to become stale. So I thought the wildest thing I could do for my first restaurant was go in a completely new direction. And it worked. It, 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 did, it did get people you know, infuriated. It got them, it got them upset. Why are you doing this? How dared you do that? Um, so yeah, that happened. And pay on. After, after I got the initial, what the fuck? I laughed. I was like, Oh, this is perfect. Stupac. <laughs> this is so Alex. Apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple card with Apple pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs bank, USA, Salt Lake city branch subject to credit approval terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So, Alex, do you think that anything's changed in terms of the public's perception of what you're doing, especially with what you're doing at Misha right now? It, 
it's weird. It feels like the goal now is for it all to hide in plain view. And that's how you're going to get it to survive forever. What do you mean? That makes sense. Well, I don't know. Rather than build a restaurant and its marketing and its ethos around the idea that look at me, look how creative I am, look what I can do, look at me pull a rabbit out of the hat. It's actually trying to hide all those things in a restaurant that can serve three to 400 people a day. Because then if the 1% notices, maybe it's more of a needle mover. Maybe it's less about that sort of disco era. And maybe it can actually be a, a bigger part of change, if that makes sense. And what do you think it is about a critic that doesn't appreciate how you stitch together, you know, those ingredients in a way that is, is different than anyone else, but still ultimately delicious. It's weird. I don't know. Does criticism still exist? Well, that's a whole nother. Not to answer your, (laughs) yeah. Um, it, yeah, I don't know. It, It feels like, um, Lately, it's all about getting eyes on things and writing things in a very particular way. Um, And maybe that doesn't line up with what you're actually trying to transmit. Well, before we get to Misha, I I wanted to sort of connect the dots. So you decide you're going to make tacos. You open up Empeon in the East Village. um, And then you proceed to open up how many more restaurants from there? Five of them. And then did you sign the lease for Empion Midtown before the pandemic or during the pandemic? Oh, that, that happened before the pandemic. How did yeah. you feel when the pandemic hit when you signed that giant lease for that giant building? How did I feel? <laughs> I mean, I had to lay off I had to lay off two hundred people. And <laughs> I I had to figure out how to pay rent and feed my kids. It was a, it was a terrifying moment. And then, um, but you, you know, got to it shut o- five restaurants like that, but you got it open, right? What, what restaurants did you open during the pandemic? We, we, we opened another Empeon Taqueria immediately post pandemic. And then we opened Misha. Misha was slated to open before the pandemic. And then the whole thing got mothballed. That's, that's the, that's the one. And what made you decide? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny because I remember talking to you like, Oh, I'm only doing tacos now. I'm not going to do anything else. And then when I read that you're doing Misha, I was like, of course that's fucking what he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're worse than I am. What, what compelled you to be like, all right, I'm going to deviate from making tacos and I'm going to do something different. Well, I think um, you and I have learned the hard way that there's limitations to brands. Once you build a certain set of expectations, the creative side of you wants to break out of the parameters that you created, but then your customers have kind of telling you what it is you are. You know, I have people on my team that have been with me as long as 10 and 12 years. And I don't think any of them started cooking with me because they were interested in Mexican food. I think they were cooking with me because we're a creative restaurant group. So we had to create a new thing. So 
it wouldn't just be about tacos and margaritas for people. Because no matter how creative Empeon is, people will pigeonhole it as a Mexican restaurant. People have a hard time wrapping their head around the idea that a Mexican restaurant can be creative. A Korean restaurant can be creative. No different than a French restaurant, right? Um, so we wanted to label something American with the idea that that would set it free to do absolutely anything. Because America is everything. I think I, I get it. I wonder if anyone else would get it, right? It's a, it's a deviation that makes sense if we know you. And also it's a deviation that makes sense because of the restaurant group. But I, I would imagine it was still a shock to a public uh, in New York that's expecting. It's funny. It's like they expected you to make modern food. Then they got used to you making tacos. And then they get shocked that you're not making tacos anymore and you're doing something else. Yeah, well, well, selfishly, can I be that throughout my career? Um, selfishly, next time I open a new restaurant, will people go, well, what the hell is that one going to be? Um, that would be great. Um, if, if we can position ourselves in New York City as sort of the last one standing to do unexpected things, and again, doing them in a very different way than we did them in 2005. It's not about hydrocolloids anymore. It's not about parlor tricks. It's about something else. But can we? Can we be that, you know, for the next 20 years? And I haven't been to Misha. I haven't even seen you in four years plus. <laughs> um, what's been the reception to Misha, right? I, I listen, and this is how distilled and overly reductive everything is. And I know you, it's got to drive you fucking batshit crazy because it seems that all, all the headlines are the sausage. Yeah, hot people dog. are focused on the the fucking hot dog. Yeah, people. It's it's to many people, it's now a hot dog restaurant, um, which makes me a little happy and a little sad all at the same time. How the, how, how so? The goal happy? of the hot dog. Well, what we wanted to do it, in looking at an American restaurant, the first thing we had to address is the cheeseburger, because it's the most American food. So, how do you subvert? The cheeseburger, you know, that Manetta Tavern burger that's on every table. How do you get that thing on every table without actually making the thing? So restaurant burgers are always eight ounces, right? It's all because restaurants need to charge more for, so they make them bigger. So we kind of looked at the idea of, well, what if the hamburger was a hot dog? And what does an eight ounce hot dog look like? What does a restaurant hot dog look like? That was the idea. It came from an intellectual place. How um, dare you? How dare you make something are... intellectual into food? <laughs> yeah. And man, I used to think tacos pissed people off. Man, hot dogs are way, way worse. Man, are people opinionated about those? I, I can't imagine they're easy to make. It's way harder than a burger. <laughs> yeah. It's way harder. <laughs> I, I made mean, it worse. I made it harder. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not doing this again. <laughs> so people, people take the the headline. Oh, it's a twenty nine dollar sausage hot dog. And the irony is, I bet you with real labor food costs, it probably should be mid to high thirties. 
a hunt more. Like, yeah, that's the thing. So like a, a cheeseburger with no fries on the side is $38 in New York City right now. And they buy the bun, they buy the patty, they buy the ketchup and mayo and mix it and make whatever special sauce they make. The end. So yeah, to make an emulsion force meat, you know, case it, smoke it for six hours, make your own bread, make your own sidecar of dried beef chili, make your own sidecar of condiments to go with that. That's a pain in the ass. So yeah, the $29 hot dog should be $34. Can you please raise the price to $38 for me? I'm going to. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait like a year and I'm going to jack it. Once, the, once the, the media has cycled through on the $29 hot dog, go guess what? Now it's 32 I mean, I've been in those shoes. I know how demoralizing it can be. And I also understand when you said it makes you a little happy. But how do you keep on pushing through trying to take these swings without feeling like your, your, your heart's getting ripped out simultaneously? Because you don't have to do this. You don't want to be this Prometheus-like figure. You just want to make people happy. You want to do great food and you want to have innovation without it being, with being more show than tell, right? Like what, what's keeping you motivated when maybe the public at large needs like 10 years to understand that? Cause it'll happen. And you started, you're going to create a trend. And the next thing you know, you're the first guy through the wall. You're literally like Billy Bean in Moneyball. Somebody else is going to do it. And then somebody else is going to do it. And all of a sudden it's normal. And weirdly enough, when the black label burger happened. And before that I was ballooned with the DB, DB burger. But when the minute Minetta mm. black label burger happened, people were pissed. So fucking mad. They were mad at Danielle and they were mad at Minetta Tavern. But the difference is, is they were, uh, it was acceptable for whatever reason, but they didn't create outrage. And I think we're a different time in terms of food. We're talked about back then too. But, I don't know what to do anymore. How do you encourage people to take swings when clearly it's delicious? I know you might, I, ha, I can't wait to taste it, but it's not resonating with the people that it should be resonating with. It, it, by the way, it, it it's largely being loved. It, it gets a lot of love. Um, no, but I, that's what a, bothers me. I know people, it's loving. I, people fucking love it. Overwhelmingly love it. But, it gets back to the same issue that I was talking about 20 years ago, right? People complain that we have the same homogenized thing, but they're the fucking part of the main reason why it's happening without it being realized or discussed. No, that's it. Amen. And Lahayam that, that, that is the issue. Um, I, and I don't know, I don't know what keeps me going because I will tell you that Misha hurt it. It hurt. Um, it, it takes something out of you because I don't care how creative you are as a chef. I think deep down, any chef worth a damn, we all want the same thing. We want to make delicious food that makes people happy. That's it. If, if you if you don't have that in your DNA, you got to check yourself as a chef. But man, do we really need another fancy chef burger? Am I really going to? open a frozen bag of French fries and dump it in the fryer. I can't do it. Um, so you take the pain. You, you line up to get, you know, your lashings, I guess. I, and you're going to win because you do. And you're hyper competitive, even though it's not obvious to those that may know you. Um, so like if I'm going to Misha and I don't order 
the hot dog, what would you tell me to order? Well, here was the real point of Misha. Um, I wanted to make, I wanted to make Hillstone for Gen Z. That was the real point. How dare you try to do that, Alex? (laughs) Make people happy. (laughs) Fuck you, man. Well, think about it. It's like there's been so much, you know, post all the the molecular gastronomy movement, there's been all this revival of country club cuisine, you know? Um, So it's like, great. You know how to cook white people country club food sous vide now. You know how to make it a little bit better. And what I'm looking at is I'm looking at the 25 and 30 year olds now. It's like, you don't need to explain to them what kimchi is. You don't need to explain to them that Ethiopian flavors can make it on that menu. So that was the idea. Like, let's, let's do a place with severe juxtapositions all over the menu. Let's not allow French, Italian, or Japanese, not because they're not delicious, but because those are everyone's favorites immediately. Let's focus on everything else. Let's make the most confluent and delicious menu possible. The hot dog was just one part of it. You know, there's 45 other dishes. And direct me, what, what, what do I need to order for someone that's listening? Well, you got to get the duck and foie gras mortadella. You got to get the deviled egg floating island with trout roe. Do people know how hard you gotta it is notice- to, do people know how hard it is to make mortadella? <laughs> I don't think they do. Yeah, and it, it, it's even harder to replace the to replace the chunks of fat back with chunks of foie gras and have that not render out. That's even harder. But again, back to that: Do people notice that type of stuff anymore? Do you want them to notice? Do you care? I don't know. I just want them to think it's delicious. So, um, yeah, do they notice that there's a pasta section on the menu with no Italian food in it? What do they the, notice what that are, the only what actual is the pasta section in Taylor? Um, we have kasha barnishkas. We have brown butter spetzel, and we have varaniki, which people like think it's like pierogi, but it's more the Ukrainian version filled with fruit. It's like you know everyone talks about pasta in terms of Italy, but look, it all came from the east. It all came from it was all noodles first. Amen right? to that. So if so if pasta is just a word for paste, pasta is paste. It's a dough, right? So no culture gets to own pasta. So you get it. There's like some intellectual grenade throwing into the menu where it's like if I have a pasta section with no Italian food in New York City, that's offensive to some people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but for me, but for me, for Italy to think that they're the only culture that makes pasta, well, that's offensive to me. It doesn't mean that you don't love Italian food or pasta. No, love it. But we got plenty of it. We have so much of it in New York City. Um, I guess I get bored with the idea that everyone, it's like you make a burger or everyone's just going to compare it to every other burger in New York City. So it's just more interesting to make things that they can't compare. And when you get to the entrees, what does that consist of? Um, we have a dish of shrimp and grits. But we made rice grits, which the first time I made them, I realized, hey, that's kanji. And if there's some country ham and mushrooms in that, I'm like, well, we should use shiitake mushrooms and we should use XO sauce because that has dried shrimp in it. So you have shrimp and rice grits with XO sauce and scallions. 
you have a regional American dish that's been influenced by China. And I think that's awesome. You know, that type of continued thoughtful cross-cultural, I hate to say fusion, but it is. But in a thoughtful way. See, that dish to me is way more important than the hot dog. Do you have a tomahawk chop? Ribeye for two? <laughs> I don't. Um, uh, we have, uh, what do we have? We have Romanian steak. Because I thought that was a really New York-y thing. And what is Romanian steak? Skirt steak. Yeah, it's skirt steak. Shit ton of garlic, shit ton of paprika. We fry it in schmaltz. Listen, I love Sammy's Romanian, but I'm pretty sure that yours is going to taste better. Don't get mad at me, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we were kind of we were kind of grooving on like what are these New Yorky things, um, and we were kind of grooving on the idea that there's these wild juxtapositions that are hiding in plain view. So at a place like WD-50 or Alinea, the goal back in the day was to put an odd flavor pairing on the plate. But think about going to a, like a restaurant in New York City like Veselka and think that you could get pierogi and I could get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, how are those two things coexisting? There's a reason why. There's an immigrant who's at service in two directions. They're at service to their heritage, right? And they can't ever not be at service to that. They'd be a sellout. Um, but they are also, they are also at service to ubiquity. They're at service to the marketplace because they're trying to make it. And in realizing that you see some really wild things that are coming together on a menu, all hiding in plain view is normal. That's fascinating to me. Absolutely. And I don't have to worry about desserts because again, like I know you only got into pastry, not because you love sweets and pastry, which you do. You got into pastry back early on simply because it gave you the autonomy that you could not get on a savory line or hotline early on. Am I right? I remember that. Actually true. Fact, factually true. And it was um, smart. You, you, you looked you could, at it and you're like, well, that's going to take me forever to actually get some kind of independence. So I'm going to fucking make pastry, whether I love it or not. We'll find out. Yeah. I, I feel like the sous chefs are often always a little sad. They're kind of at the whim of uh, the chef you know, where chefs tend to be all thumbs with pastry. So if you can be good at it and have an opinion about it, look, when I was 25, I, I had messed up ambitions. I, I wanted my name on the menu. That really mattered to me. Um, but, you know, just silly, I, but I, I put you in the same pantheon for those that don't know, like Albert Audrey says he's a pastry chef, but he is not a pastry chef. He's, the brains and the chef. he's like a he's just a fucking chef, <laughs> you know. I, no, I think I not to invoke the. I don't want to say this, but it's like who's Antoine Carem, but he's the Antoine Carem of our time. Yes, the, and the most inventive chef around. And I don't. I never thought of you as just a pastry chef when I got to know you. I was like, oh, this is somebody that wants to understand technique, wants to know how to bend things. In order to innovate, he's got to learn how things work. And you were just curious. And I think if, if you've been listening and understanding, it's just an extension of who you are. You're curious by nature and you want to express yourself in ways that are unexpected. And, um, you know, I, I put you in a very small pantheon of American chefs. I really do. Um, 
I've never told this to your face, but I think you're one of the very best that we've ever had. You are literally probably the, you've created more techniques than any American chef in history. Legit. Like modern techniques for sure. Whether that matters to people or not, I don't know, but it matters to me because it shows somebody that wants mastery of something and understands not just technique, but quality and flavor. So, like, again, I, I've always loved you, everything you've done ever since you were at Alinea. And I even knew when you were at Clio just because I knew those guys. And I was like, huh, when you came to New York, that was huge fucking news. Because for those that don't know, you created many of the original dishes, particularly on the pastry end for at Alinea. You were, you were, you were opening team, right? Yep. Yep. 2005. I remember eating there and you were not there that day I ate there. <laughs> I was on my way to New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you were replacing Sam Mason. And I loved it because everything you did was so different. You and Sam are completely different in terms of how you think. And Sam, I love to death too, but it was refreshing to have completely do two different mindsets about how you wanted to approach something. And I just was like, this is super cool. And clearly we have a lot of connections. Tosi worked under you and you know, this, that, that WD family became a real thing. And I just always admired everything. And clearly WD, not only being a friend of mine, close friend of mine was just one of the most influential underrated restaurants. And the reason I'm telling you this, not that you need to know, it's just for an audience to know that may not know that doesn't care about the history to get here. You are making this food, not because you have to, you do it because you want to do it. And you've done a lot of different things. And ultimately you've come full circle. You just want to make something tasty. And you are one of the most creative people. And I, I talked about this at the top of the pod. You're the only person I know that invented techniques to sandbag. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm blushing over here. You are, you are, you are the dark lord of a lot of things. I don't know, but you are truly the dark lord of sandbaggery. You are, you. Nobody can beat you, and that is. Do like, people know what sandbagging is? I don't think they do. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> okay. But I was just like, holy shit, this motherfucker is plating stuff like a day before, just as a challenge. What fo- what was that foam? I I couldn't remember. I was like, holy shit, he invented something so. He doesn't have to bother getting it ready for service and it's plated now. I walked into the walk-in and I was like, Did this fucking guy just plate something the day before? <laughs> and I just had to bow. I was blown away. I was like, holy shit. This is this is next level. And again, to, to be able <laughs> to think being, that way is amazing. I, I hate being in the weeds, man. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> you you want to know I, the best definition I heard of the weeds? I read, I read it in a, um, in a Olive Garden training manual. Wow. The definition of being in the weeds is being too busy to do a good job. 100%. So when you think about that, one should never, ever, ever get in the weeds. Amen to that. And <laughs> I, again, like to sandbag well is the highest art form of cooking. I really believe that. I really believe that because it's so much thought 
It is so much care to do it well. And that's why I crown you, in my opinion, the goat of sandbaggery. Nobody even comes fucking close <laughs> to you, man. I don't think and people realize else, that would be an insult. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I, that's like, like the highest compliment. Yeah, it is because you are. Nobody has come close. You're one of the greatest chefs America's produced. People need to know that. Pastry is on a whole different level. People need to know that. But for me, where I honor you is, man, like when I got to see the stuff that you were making, I was like, holy shit, this guy's from another planet. You're, it was just remarkable. So I can't even imagine the stuff that you've come up with to sandbag and Misha. Hot, hot dogs, man. Hot dogs. <laughs> Get rid of the cheeseburger. Don't have to hit a temp. Amazing. Don't have to worry about medium rare. Come on. <laughs> Beautiful. Like, uh, <laughs> what's it like for you to go to restaurants? Because this happens to me and it infuriates me. I, I feel like I'm one of your hype, hype, hype. People, I feel like DJ Khalid for a lot of chefs when I, when I see something and I'm like, this motherfucker needs to reference where this technique came from, right? I would say most of the pastry that is made in Michelin-starred restaurants feature at minimum one technique invented by Alex Dupin. Would you agree to that? Come on. Probably. <laughs> came up some, with some useful things. like. <laughs> And I, unfortunately, am one of the very few people that know this, and I get fucking pissed. And whether they know it or not, I put the responsibility on that chef to know that, because they need to. They can't say, like, oh, I didn't know. That means you're not doing your job. I get mad when yeah, no the, one fucking knows that. Yeah, well, we could talk forever about how Instagram and social media has kind of washed away history. You're, Everything gets disseminated so quickly. You're soft. No chocolate. one even knows who they're stealing. Copied. You're. I don't even know what you're. What do you call the 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 saw the, the 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 tubes? Two wiggle all over a plate. What do, what do you, what do you call that? I don't know what you call it. But that's yours. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that that when you see a pastry plate and there's like a, like a shaving cream, perfect cylinder all over the plate and one continuous strand that did not exist until you were born and you made that technique. <laughs> That's pretty hard to do. Cause Albert and fucking Heston, they made everything. And you didn't find that from some lapse patent as many of these ideas are happening. Like that's gotta be rewarded and celebrated. And your stuff is being copied all over America, all over the world, quite frankly. And I think people need to know this when they come eat at Empeon or they come eat at Misha because they need to know that what may look like a hamburger or what may look like some riff on Sammy's Romanian skirt steak is not just that. A lot of thought went into it. A tremendous amount of effort, a lot of research. And if they understood the, the magnitude of what you were able to do on a completely different level, which is why I get mad at the food media for not embracing it. I think people would understand what you're doing at Misha, at Misha in a wholly different level. And I get mad. I didn't talk to you about this. I knew you were hurt because I was hurt. When I read that, I was like, fucker, you know, and it doesn't fucking matter, but I know who you are and I know the shit that you do. And I know the teams that you create. And I was like, that's fucking bullshit. And somebody's got to fucking talk about it. I have a platform and I'm like, that's fucking bullshit. 
nobody's talking about that. And it makes me so mad. I'll shut the fuck up. Well, I appreciate it. It, it matters to me that you notice. You know, the, the way I try to make sense of it is that um, a movie needs the director's commentary. 99.9% of people are just going to watch the movie and decide if they like it or not like it, not read into it. But for the, for the 0.001% that care, like you, the director's commentary, it means a lot to me. So thanks. Well, of course, I always got your back. And I'm not just doing this. Even if, even if I didn't know you, I'd feel this way. But I would say that one of the things that we got to do collectively is like, we got to find a way where we're not the 0.001% that care. I don't know what that <laughs> answer is. Well, again, back to what I said, can you infiltrate the mainstream? So can you, if, can you create a subversive Mexican restaurant or an unusual American restaurant? And can you scale it? Can it actually survive? Can it make it in a city like Denver, Colorado, you know, or Dallas, Texas? Because if it could, then you're actually need, moving the needle a bit more because then you're touching the masses versus those few people that went to Madrid Fusion, you know? that went to the conferences we were talking about before, were we cooking for the world or were we just cooking for each other? It was a lot of, so masturb- it was a lot had- of masturbation, Alex. It was a lot. It, it, it really was in retrospect. Um, yeah, you were kind of designing clothes that were never meant to be worn on the street. And I think this is amazing, you know, to do what you're doing subversive is what I always think about Alex Dupac. I don't know if anyone else does, you know, <laughs> like I don't think people realize like the, the funniness of all your death metal t-shirts and, and just your humor in general, but it does spread out to pretty much everything else that you do, <laughs> you do in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I'd like to be consistent. <laughs> Very consistent in that regard. What are you, what else you got going on besides making Misha one of the best restaurants, et cetera, et cetera? What else you got going on? Um, well, I'm an idiot, so I'm opening more restaurants. All I'm working New- on more stuff. All in New York? So far, all in New York. Um, I do think it's time. I do think no more Empeon in New York. I think it's time to take Empeon to another city. Um, I think we we owe it to the team to to grow it, and I think it has the the DNA to be a uh, at least a national thing, hopefully global. So, but by the way, I, I like that I've waited. You know, my kids are six years old and eight year old, and I get to spend a lot of time with them, you know, by being here. So, but now that we've done Misha, it's proven to me that we aren't just a taco and margarita brand. So, we're thinking up some new stuff. Good. Well, and I kind of want to go after everyone's favorites in New York city, bit by bit. I want to go after the cheeseburger. I want to go after pizza. I want to go like, I want to go after sort of the, um, the bullies that I like to call them the culinary bullies that dominate. Ugh. You're, 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 you're making me so happy. Can you give us a taste of your, you, you you've done a, a, a remarkable job of hiding your mass wholeness. Can you, <laughs> I, I don't know if people, people may get a glimpse of it on social media where they hear something here or there, but when you do a masshole accent, it is like, again, as world-class as your sandbaggery, can you just finish us out by talking where you were bred and born? <laughs> Cause it's so good. 
Does do you ever swing yeah, back man. into talking that way, like without even thinking, or do you like code switch? Like I got to talk like yeah. a New York. It, it, it's weird. I, I never. I don't consciously shut it off. Like my whole family talks that way, and for some reason, I don't. the The town I'm from is called Lemonster, but you say Lemonster. That's how you say it, Lemonster. And I thought about this. I almost put this dish on the menu at Misha for as an inside joke about this accent. What would be the best dish you could ever say in a masshole accent? I figured it out. You, I have no idea. You're going to have to tell me. Arctic cha ta ta. I have a feeling that's going to make it to the menu. Maybe with some pickled artichoke hats. <laughs> some elephant garlic chips, kid. Come on. And what are you listening to right now? <laughs> what are you listening to right now? Uh, I, in my headphones, I'm pretty all metal all the time. Um, like yeah. what kind of metal? So people Bands know. Like, death metal is king for me. With, with black metal and grindcore as my number two and three genres. Um, I like the technical nature of it. You know, it sounds like noise to a lot of people, but you know, for people who really knew, know music and don't even like it, they'll study it and go, Oh shit, how are they playing that fast? So it comes back to technique bands like necrophagist and defeated sanity, you know, happy stuff. <laughs> well, listen, man, um, I could keep you all day. I'm going to, Next time you, I don't know, when you're in LA, we should do this uh, in person and I will see you when I'm back in New York, which is not nearly as much as I thought it would be. But Alex's new restaurant is Misha in Midtown East, chef co-owner of Empion Restaurant Group. And that's how many locations? East Village, Midtown? Five. Five. Instagram yeah, handle East is... East Village, West Village. Instagram handle at Alex, Alex Stupak, A-L-E-X-S-T-U-P-A-K yeah. and TikTok is at Alex underscore Stupak. And I'm reading here, you even have a YouTube channel, Alex Stupak Chef. And if I was a young cook, we're talking about where I'd work, I would definitely work under you because I'd need to learn how you think. And I think you're a great landing spot for somebody that wants to sort of further their career in a new, different way. So I think we need more and more people cooking new and different things. And I know that you are sort of the the stalwart of it all, man. So I love you to death and uh, thank you for joining us. Love you back. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Thank you, Alex. Uh, again, go visit his restaurants, Misha and Empeon and I hope this slow march of a global expansion of of Alex. I think one of the highlights I see is, you know, he's always wearing some kind of death metal band. I never know what the fuck he's when he's listening to music. It's very loud and it sounds very angry. And <laughs> it, 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 that's just Alex. But when he's not wearing a death metal shirt, he's wearing a Kirkland t-shirt or a Kirkland sweatshirt. And it's always so funny to me. But I wanted to finish off with one thing I dislike. I want people to stop saying lacto-fermented on their menus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, 
lactobacillic fermentation is probably one of the most common ways that you get fermented foods and that flavor, that acid buildup. Lactic acid is something that we make, what makes our muscles sore after we work out, but also gives it that tanginess that makes pickle so, so desirable as well. I think we should just use the word pickle. This is completely idiosyncratic of me. And I hope this is the last year anyone uses lacto-fermented. The only other time I feel like you should describe how it's pickled is if you're doing something different. If it's like, and those are the Japanese versions of mono, suke mono, suke mono being pickled. You have shio mono, you have a sh- uh, shoyu mono, and you have like nuka mono and a, a couple others. But most people aren't fermenting in rice bran and, you know, just stop using the word lacto-fermented. I, I'm seeing it everywhere. I've been guilty of it as well. Let's put a stop to it. I think it looks ridiculous on a menu to put lacto-fermented. If we're going to go down that road, there's a lot of other things we could change to make it sort of match that, but let's not do that. And uh, I'm sure what I'm saying is only relevant to like 15 people listening to this, but so be it. It's my fucking podcast. Anyway, let's get out of here. Give us five stars. Five stars.